This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is America, changed forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The Supreme Court made decisions this week that will change forever the presidency, the availability of birth control, although that may or may not be forever. We'll get into that. And the way half of one of our states is ruled. We're joined by Manny Medrano, an Emmy Award-winning attorney who covered the Supreme Court for a major network, was a federal prosecutor who, by the way, never lost a jury trial in the 10 years he served in the Los Angeles U.S. Attorney's Office. And that included high-profile prosecutions like the 1985 kidnapping, torture, and murder of DEA Special Agent Enrique Camarena in Mexico. He's now partner in the firm of Medrano and Carlton. Manny, good to talk to you again. How are you doing? Always great to chat with you, Gil. Thanks for letting me join you. Well, let's start with the big headline, the two decisions about President Trump's taxes, which appear at first glance to be a win for the district attorney of Manhattan in New York City but a setback or even outright loss for Democrats in Congress. It's all a little more complicated than that. Let's start with that 7-2 to decision that allows the Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance Jr., to get Donald Trump's tax records in a criminal investigation. What's this mean? Well, if we cut to the chase, because it is a bit of a complicated decision with regard to Trump's financial records and the release of those documents, uh, at the end of the day, uh, President Trump did his best to to, to limit access to these important financial documents. But the Supreme, Supreme Court basically in both cases, in decisions by seven to two votes, uh, where the Chief Justice wrote the majority opinion, basically said that those records will need to be produced. Now, the good news for President Trump is it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen until well after the upcoming, upcoming November election. So it does pave the way for the release of those documents. But at the end of the day, in terms of let's say, any political damage to the president, it's going to have virtually no effect at this early stage. Uh, One thing is that President Trump could apparently pardon himself for any federal crimes if he chooses to do that. There doesn't seem to be anything in the Constitution that would stop him from doing that. But Vance is investigating state crimes. Now, what kind of protection does a president have in terms of state crimes. Well, and that's an excellent point, because I've actually filed requests for petitions for pardons on behalf of federal inmates, and that invokes federal jurisdiction, federal cases, Gil. So the president of the United States has no authority to pardon a state criminal uh, conviction. 
So that's really nothing that can be of any assistance to uh, President Trump. But as I said, what's key here and what seems to be glossed over or missed by a lot of uh, uh, media outlets is the fact that you have a current sitting president of the United States in the crosshairs of a district attorney and a grand jury investigation. And I can tell you this, based on experience, because I've been doing this for many, many years in the criminal justice system, when you find yourself that situated in that manner, more likely than not, you're going to be indicted. On the congressional case, the ruling seemed to be that Congress could have his tax records, but it should be for something more specific, like an investigation of actual criminality, that this request is part of just getting information for possible legislation seemed too much, even though they did not use this term, like a fishing expedition. If Vance were to make a criminal case in New York, and that's not a certain thing, but let's say that he did, could Democrats in Congress come back and say, okay, this time it's over an actual criminal matter, not uh, vague information about a possible law? Well, the the congressional Democrats could most definitely do that, Gil, but ultimately uh, they they got what they wanted, that they're going to have access, but the Supreme Court said, we're going to send it back to the lower court to see if Trump wants to object for the congressional subpoena on the grounds that it is too broad. So that stretches out this entire uh, time frame for this particular matter. So ultimately, you know, congressional Democrats are going to get access, but there's going to be a lot of back and forth uh, fighting over the scope of the, of the subpoena. And again, any results are going to take us into the next year at the earliest. One of the interesting things is two of the dissenting judges on having the president's taxes released is that it would interfere with his presidential duties. I was surprised by that, not because of any political reason, but back in 1997, the Supreme Court unanimously, nine nothing, rejected that very interference argument when Bill Clinton brought it up to try and protect himself against a lawsuit by Paul Jones. Well, and that's exactly right, Bill, because basically the Supreme Court with these rulings for the financial records for President Trump is basically saying that no individual, even a sitting president of the United States, is above the law. If you receive a grand jury subpoena or congressional subpoena, you have to respond and deal with it like you and I would, heaven forbid, if we got grand jury subpoenas. Let's move on to one of the other decisions the Supreme Court made this week, and this was upholding a Trump administration regulation that lets employers with religious or moral objections limit women's access to birth control coverage under the Affordable Care Act. The headlines made it sound like, well, that's it. These women, probably about 126,000 in all, have lost this kind of coverage for all time. As with virtually every Supreme Court decision, as you and I have discussed in the past, Gil, it's, it's very hard to generalize. But when you get into the weeds with, with this particular decision upholding the Trump administration regulation that lets employers opt out of birth control coverage, you have to remember what the backdrop is here. There has been fierce I repeat, fierce litigation over the so-called contraception mandate, okay? Uh, An initiative that began with Obama uh, administration that required most employers to provide cost-free coverage for contraception. And then Trump administration came in and sought to limit that. Uh, In all candor, it was a Trump victory because he he got what he wanted. Now, of course, uh, uh, many religious groups are absolutely elated, saying that no business should be forced to provide drugs and devices that could potentially destroy life. Of course, the flip side of that is uh, women's groups are, are absolutely furious, uh, interpreting the Supreme Court ruling as, as an assault on women's rights. So it is definitely a controversial issue that 
is not going to go away. There are going to be uh, future legal fights over this entire topic. Finally, let's talk about the one that seemed to come out of nowhere almost. The Supreme Court ruled on Thursday that a lot of eastern Oklahoma, including a, a major part of Tulsa, Oklahoma, is still a Muskogee Creek American Indian Reservation, a decision that has implications for nearly two million residents. Obviously, a major victory for tribal rights, too. But what does this mean for citizens of Oklahoma? I want to answer that this way. In the midst of the pandemic that we're in right now, many people are not truly grasping the seismic impact to the criminal justice system. I'm in that system every day. And uh, jury trials delayed, uh, video Zoom court appearances. The world has been turned upside down. This case is just as seismic because basically much of eastern Oklahoma now falls within an Indian reservation. The Supreme Court saying, you know what? A deal, a contract, if you will, was cut between the tribe and the United States uh, in terms of uh, tribal lands. And now the United States has to abide by its promises. So this is earth shattering, if you will, because it could remarkably impact uh, the ability to state and federal authorities to, let's say, prosecute uh, uh, Native Americans who are accused of crimes in, in eastern Oklahoma. And more importantly, it could completely upend convictions that already exist, Gil. So take this to the back. Uh, criminal defense lawyers are now going to be filing various motions to throw out convictions based on this decision. So this five to four decision is extraordinarily uh, consequential, major victory for Native American rights. And uh, basically, the Supreme Court saying, you know what, this is Indian country and Native Americans need a modicum of respect when it comes to the criminal justice system. So this could also bring cases by the Cherokee Nation, by the Chickasaws, by the Choctaws and Seminoles, all of whom are in a similar situation. Oh, Gil, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, uh, in that vein of thought, you know, Chief Justice on this particular decision, Mr. Roberts, was uh, he warned in his dissenting opinion that this would absolutely wreak havoc and confusion for the state of Oklahoma's criminal justice system. And look, uh, I'm not voting one way or the other in terms of whether I agree or disagree with the decision, but as an experienced criminal defense lawyer, I am telling you, this is turning that criminal justice system in eastern Oklahoma upside down because now indigenous people can't be prosecuted by state or local law enforcement. And instead, they have to face justice in their own tribal or federal courts. Now, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel because now there's going to be intense negotiations between uh, tribal groups and, and local and state authorities to see what agreements can be reached. And hopefully everyone will move in the right direction. This is an extraordinary decision that may impact other issues relating to tribal groups, uh, not frankly, not only in the state of Oklahoma, but maybe in other states as well. Manny Medrano, former correspondent for major network covering the Supreme Court, now partner in the firm of Medrano and Carlton in Los Angeles. Manny, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Gil. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. When we talk about how America may be changed forever, many of our stories, whether they be politics, schools, the economy, sports, or so many other issues, have had one thing in common, the battle against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. There has been a surge of cases, which runs counter to the hope that warm weather would have helped. In fact, many of the worst surges here in summer 
are in the warmest states. So what are we seeing and why? We welcome back Dr. Mel Herbert, longtime emergency room physician, CEO of MRAP and Copendium, an online textbook medical education company, and of course, professor of emergency medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine. Good to have you back. It's good to be back. Oh, maybe it's not good to be back because if you weren't talking to me, we'd be probably better off. I, yes, you know, there there is that, Mel. As part of MRAP, you get to talk to emergency department physicians from across the country. What are they seeing right now? What are they telling you? Well, unfortunately, since we last spoke, um, what we were concerned about uh, has happened, and that is that a lot of states opened up too quickly, and they also didn't open up very smart. And so we are seeing incredible surges in Florida, in Texas, and in Arizona in particular, but even here in California, where we thought we'd done a pretty good job. We are seeing not quite the spike in cases that they're seeing in Arizona and Florida, for example, but just a continual, relentless increase in the number of cases to the point where even here in California, our ICU capacity is really getting stretched. But in places like Arizona, they're beyond stretched. They are in crisis mode. Now, as I mentioned earlier, many people thought, well, warm weather would would bring this down a bit. There were predictions that, oh, by April, we'll see a leavening off. Obviously, that hasn't happened. We're here in summer. We're having a surge. Has whatever, first of all, is there a warm weather effect? And if there is any at all, has it just been defeated by the way we've reopened or what? Well, as always, we have to sort of say we're not exactly sure. We won't know exactly um, until sort of the end of this pandemic. But the best modeling, the best information we have is that it is affected by warm weather, which makes what's happening right now even worse. This is the very best time. This is the hottest. There's lots of UV light. Um, And if that's true, if it has a seasonal variation, has a temperature variation, has a sunlight variation, then even despite all that, we're seeing these huge spikes We've got a real problem because when we all go back inside, when the temperature goes down, that second surge could be, as a number of modelers have predicted, far worse than the first surge. So it's uh, it's probably true that there is some seasonal variation, but you can overwhelm that by the fact that this is a very infectious virus and we are not doing the basics. We are not wearing our masks and we're acting um, as a society uh, very poorly when it comes to public health. Another thing that I wonder about during the summer, the World Health Organization now agrees after a number of doctors around the world petitioned them that this virus may be airborne indoors, possibly through air conditioning systems. We live in modern offices where you can't open a window and get a breeze. And of course, we've wandered back into a lot of such buildings during the summer. I wonder if that's also part of the summer surge or with contact tracing so early in this summer surge, it's impossible to tell. Yeah, again, I have to say we won't know exactly for some time, but the the best evidence we have right now out of Japan, out of China, out of Italy, is that it does appear to be significantly more infectious indoors than outdoors. Uh, one study in Japan trying to put a number of around 20 times more infectious inside than outside. That kind of data strongly suggests that this is airborne. So usually when we think about droplets, as if I sneeze, if I cough, if I'm breathing, the virus is in fairly big droplets that will fall to the ground pretty quickly just under their own weight. And so if you're six feet away from somebody, you're pretty protected. But with this new sort of suggestion and some evidence that it can actually float around in really tiny droplets that float around in the air for quite a long time, that means that being inside 
and being inside for prolonged periods of time and being inside for prolonged periods of time if there's somebody excreting virus means that that room unless it's really well ventilated is going to have more and more virus into the air into the air increasing the concentration of virus in the air so that that also increases the chance that other people within that room are going to get it you can reduce that concentration by having the windows open the doors open lots of air movement if you're in a place where there's air conditioning, if that air conditioning air is being filtered through a HEPA filter, you can reduce it. But most um, indoor areas don't have that. They have air conditioning that actually sucks the air from the room and then puts it back into the room after it's um, cooled it down. Some entrain the air from outside. That would be good. But most of them don't have things like HEPA filters. So going back indoors in most places that are indoors, if this is true and it does appear to be true, is going to make the possibility of infecting other people quite high. Again, we're fairly early on this, but according to what they can see, masks do indeed prevent deaths. Yeah, uh, we spoke to the group from Washington State that are sort of leading the world in this, and their models, based on some pretty good evidence from prior epidemics, from prior SARS epidemics, from some early uh, evidence we have, is that masks are actually incredibly effective. And in their model, if you look at it, over time, if you're not wearing a mask, there is going to be an enormous spike of this disease starting in September. It's already started now, but really taking off in September when we go back inside. It, the graphs are ter- basically terrifying at how much of a rise of cases there could be. But that graph actually can be bent way down. The r naught below zero so that the infection spreads less and less and less and less and it actually will start to go away if about 90% of people wear masks about 90% of the time. That's kind of what their model uses. So if people were really anal retentive about wearing a mask whenever they are outside, whenever they're amongst groups of other people, we could really uh, change this curve. And so it, it drives me crazy and makes me so sad that this has become politicized. The wearing of masks can significantly change the course of this disease. And this is, you know, this is something that everybody should do. You should wear a seatbelt in your car because it significantly reduces your chance of being hurt. You should put your child in a a car seat, and we have laws for these things, because they significantly reduce injury. Wearing a mask significantly reduces the number of patients that are going to get infected. And come on, how hard is it? to wear a mask. Our forefathers went to war and died for each other, and we can't even wear a mask for each other. I mean, if you're one of those people that is screaming about the fact that this is impinging on your rights, you need to stop and take it your own pulse and say, hey, come on, um, we're living in a society here. This is not anarchy. If I can help society by wearing a mask, can't I just do that? How hard is that really? It really does work. It brings me to my last question. You mentioned that this may really track go up in numbers in September. We're, of course, having a major debate in this country about kids going back to school when we're getting completely different information. Centers for Disease Control has just had little dribs and drabs of suggestions since March, and now they've decided that they're basically just going to stay out of the thing. The American uh, Pediatric Uh, Association is saying, well, they really should go back to school because there are other things, including, you know, school lunch programs and things that contribute to their health. And it's probably a good thing. And we're not sure young people, even if they get the virus, really take it home and give it to other people anyway. How concerned are you by this? And what is the information, if we even have any, again, because kids have been out of school for so long, about transmission from young people to older people? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, 
I think we should try as hard as we can to get kids back to school for so many reasons. They're a generation that is really getting behind. Um, this is the only way that many people in society can get back to work themselves. There's a lot of social problems with having kids at home all the time. So this is a very difficult thing. So I think we can potentially do it, but it is going to require a significant effort and a significant amount of money. If we look at other countries that appear to have done this reasonably well in Sweden and other places, if you do things like um, reduce the class size substantially, have staggered schooling so that not all the kids are at school at the same time, cohort kids and teachers so that they're exposing themselves to as few uh, other kids and other teachers as possible, really uh, religious cleaning of the schools constantly, um, the wearing of masks whenever possible, obviously the little kids are not going to do that. If we do all of those things, we might be able to do it. That's going to require a significant amount of expense, a significant amount of guidance. It's going to require the federal government to be involved. And even after all that, we're not exactly sure um, what that will mean. There is some evidence that perhaps younger kids are less likely to spread it um, to adults than adults are to each other. But that is very preliminary, and we're not exactly sure what to do that. But this is very difficult, and I think um, this is why we need leadership like we've never had since perhaps the Second World War. We need courageous leadership that can get up there and say, we don't know exactly, but we are going to try some things out and we are going to uh, look at the science as best we can and we are going to spend the money that's required to do this because if we don't, what's going to happen is if we do see a spike after kids go back to school, then people are going to pull their children out of school and we're going to have a, another wave of closings and another wave of layoffs. So I think uh, we potentially can do this, but we better do it right. We better do it in a way that we can track it. And we have to be very humble to say we're not exactly sure how to do it, but we have some guidance and we should implement that as much as possible. And we'll get deeper into that debate in another segment coming up. Dr. Mel Herbert is longtime emergency room physician, CEO of MRAP and Copendium, an online textbook, professor of emergency medicine at the UCLA School of Medicine. Mel, as always, we thank you so much. Oh, thank you for the time. And please wear your masks. That's a simple thing to do that could really help all those around you. Thanks again. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Where is the economy? June unemployment numbers are better, but 1.3 million more people have just applied for benefits, and many more companies such as Brooks Brothers and A.C. Nielsen have announced big job cuts, with others such as J.C. Penney and Neiman Marcus, GNC, and Pier 1 still to come as they close stores or finish liquidation sales. On CBS News Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan looked to an economist to find out what's ahead. Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics, joins us now from Philadelphia. Uh, you had already predicted this would be the shortest but arguably most severe recession in history. What did we learn from the data we got? Well, it was good, about as good as you could expect. Uh, almost 5 million jobs uh, were created during the month. That's on top of 2.7 million in the month of May. So we've gotten about a third of the jobs back that we lost in in March and April. Unemployment declined. Uh, properly measured, it's about 12 percent. Hard to imagine that that's a good number, but it is a good number compared to 20 percent, which we got in, in April. That was the peak. But here, here's the thing, Margaret, the unfortunate thing. Uh, you know, the, the unexpected better economic news 
is the result of the very rapid increase in business reopenings, too fast, uh, because now the virus is re-intensifying and the pandemic is raging in a lot of key states across the country. They're pulling back, and that's not in the data yet. That's coming down the road. So I fear that the best economic news was in June, and as we look to July and going forward, the job statistics are going to look uh, meaningfully, uh, meaningfully worse. Uh, the, the, the pandemic is a real issue now. And these are these states that are seeing these spikes are important to the U.S. economy, very large economies, Texas, uh, California, Florida. How much do you expect to see consumers pull back? They are they're big. I mean, if you add up California, Texas, Florida, let's throw in Arizona, you're, you know, you're now talking about uh, over a fifth of the economy, probably closer to a third of the economy right there. Uh, and I, I do expect uh, that we're going to see pullbacks by businesses in those states. And here's the, here's the thing. It's not just businesses that are directly impacted. It's not just restaurants and retailers. I think all businesses are going to be nervous about the uncertainty that this all creates. And so they're going to become even more cautious in, in hiring back uh, workers. And then, of course, you've got uh, consumers. You right. and I, uh, you know, uh, we, we, were, we already had one hand on the bunker. I can't imagine that many of us aren't going to go right back into the bunker as a result of all this and wait this out. So this is very disconcerting. And if Dr. Fauci is right and we we're headed towards 100,000 per day, I think the prospects of going back into recession are pretty high. Well, we know certainly at the White House and on Capitol Hill, they're going to have to take a look at what kind of emergency aid uh, will need to be provided in light of some of this changing information that we're receiving. In your view, do you think Congress needs to provide some kind of help uh, to American families? 80 million Americans have children under the age of 18. They can't necessarily send them back to school in the summer, maybe not in the fall. Child care is also in question. How important is it to address that specific challenge? Critical, it's absolutely critical. Uh, you know, if Congress and the administration don't get it together in the next few weeks before Congress goes away on its August recess, uh, I, I fear we're going back into recession because uh, it, the economy needs a lot of help. And you, you point out there's a lot of, e even though unemployment's back down, if you add up folks that are unemployed, people who are, have got their hours cut, they're still working, but they got their hours cut. And then consider those folks that are still working, haven't gotten their hours cut, but got their pay cut. You're talking about a third of all American workers that are still struggling here. And if they don't get some additional help on, you know, and as you know, the the unemployment insurance uh, uh, expansion that was part of right. the original help to the economy is, is, is going away in two to three weeks. So if, if Congress and administration don't figure out how to provide more help to these folks, uh, they're, they're going to have absolutely no choice but to stop paying bills, cut spending, and the economy is really going to struggle. Here's the other thing. State and local governments are hemorrhaging red ink, right? right. So every, uh, every state and local government across the country, it doesn't matter whether you're in a Republican state or a Democratic state, you're hemorrhaging red ink and they're slashing payrolls. And these are middle um, uh, income jobs. Uh, they're teachers, they're fire, they're police, they're emergency responders. These are the kinds of folks we need working at any time, but particularly in a pandemic. So it's, it's just absolutely critical, critical that Congress doesn't take the wrong right. message from the June jobs number and says, okay, uh, mission accomplished, we're okay here. We're far from it. They need to provide a lot more help and very soon. But what about the specific child care issue? How does, how does Congress solve well, that? It, 
Well, I mean, you're right. They, they, they have to provide support through, uh, to, ch to support for child care on the other side of the, uh, during the pandemic and once schools, uh, during the summer and when, when school, if schools don't reopen. So there has to be additional support there. You know, there's different ways of providing that support, direct aid to people who are unemployed or, you know, through, the, uh, through unemployment insurance or through the tax code. There's a child tax credit that could be used to make it refundable to different households so that they can get cash back if, you know, if they have child care needs. But, uh, you know, all those things need to be part of any additional support that Congress uh, comes forward with. And hopefully, again, they come forward with that uh, quickly here. Economist Mark Zanti with CBS News correspondent Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Schools across the nation will be reopening in a matter of weeks. Well, some will, and some won't. And some may reopen for some days and go online for others. And many have no idea yet what they'll do, especially after the SARS-CoV-2 virus surged in 38 states over the past couple of weeks. President Trump is demanding schools at every level fully reopen. But K-12, through historically a state and local matter, give him only so much power, and universities and colleges hardly any power at all. So what's best to do for kids, parents, teachers, and the nation? Lilia Skelson Garcia is a sixth grade teacher who serves as president of the three million member National Education Association. It's good to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing okay, considering, <laughs> yes, that the world is on fire. So the president wants K through 12 schools to reopen. School districts, teachers, and parents in many parts of the country don't sound so sure as this virus surges. And we've now had even some kids, including recently a 17-year-old, die. And we've had an outbreak at a child care facility in Texas. So that brings up the question, are schools ready? Um, no, they're not ready. And they could be. And we have asked for Congress to give us the same consideration that they gave Shake Shack uh, when they were about to lay off people. And, and when, it's a, when it's a business, for some reason, you know, wow, we, we all sang Kumbaya and sent tons of money to folks that needed it and a lot of folks that didn't need it. But the whole thing was, of course, you're going to need some money to keep people on the payroll, uh, to reinvent your businesses in this, in this you know, socially distant world. Um, we asked, educators asked, uh, for the same kind of consideration. Now that school funding, I mean, people aren't paying taxes, income taxes, sales taxes are falling off a cliff. So our the money to run our schools is in a crisis. We're, we're on the point of having to lay off upwards of a million teachers and school support staff if we don't get some help. Um, and it passed the House. Now, I'm a sixth grade teacher who had 30 nine 12-year-olds in my class uh, one year. That was not um, that was not healthy on the best day. Uh, and I got sneezed and coughed on, you know, a, a dozen times. I knew I was going to catch somebody's cold. This is different. This is a virus that kills people. This is a virus that is silent. And kids can get sick. And kids can die from this. And kids who are asymptomatic can be carriers. And where are they going to carry it? back home to mom and dad. They're going to cough on their teacher. People are going to die. Let's talk about the money. Uh, a lot of people don't realize 
taxes are down, uh, sales taxes, income taxes to states, property taxes, mm-hmm. all are down because people are unable to pay, either because of, well, generally because of, of job loss. And in the midst of this, we have additional expenses that are to be incurred by school districts, paying for masks, enhanced cleanings, additional busing to account for social distancing requirements, are going to run about $500 a student. Doesn't sound like much when you say it that way, but that adds up to $1.8 million for an average-sized district, as much as $100 million for a major district like Los Angeles or New York City. It brings up the question that you were bringing up, where does the money come from? Right. And so... um... I, I taught for 20 years in Utah, where our state motto is stack them deep, teach them cheap. Uh, we have the lowest per pupil funding on the planet. Uh, whenever someone would say, you know, like, well, we just can't afford it. We're not going to have art. We're not going to have. I know where that funding came from. It came from my pocket. I, I bought the kids paper. I bought I paid for the field trips they went on. Let's start with that split issue that Betsy DeVos uh, specifically criticized, districts that she said were playing both paradigms in having this hybrid of in-person and online for the fall. She singled out Fairfax County, Virginia, but uh, students in Seattle are likely to go to school in person just once or twice a week. Half of Omaha students will go Monday and Tuesday, the other half Thursday and Friday, and they'll rotate Wednesdays. There's a lot of this going on. Uh, She doesn't like that at all. It sounds like you're fine with it. Well, (laughs) nobody's fine. It's kind of like when we started this conversation, how are you? Nobody's fine. Nobody's fine. And we're trying our best in this national emergency to make things work. And so we completely agree with medical professionals, and that includes school psychologists and counselors and teachers. They know how hard it is for kids to be uh, at home, uh, that, that, that the social-emotional uh, stress that we're all going through. By the way, the teachers want to be back, too. You want to be back. No one, no one likes working from their home anymore. This is, you know, this is not fun. But... We have to keep it in our heads that this is serious and people are dying. And we are not in any way, shape, or form saying this is where it ends or this is just perfect. We're saying um, that the medical professionals have said uh, when you open something like a school, and by the way, a school is a germ factory. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, sweaty little kids are a germ factory. So you got to be extra careful. Not one of those medical professionals, even the ones that said we have to worry about kids' um, mental health and it's hard for them to be home right now and be away from their friends. We've got to think about ways to get getting them back um, into school. They never said, no problem putting 39 kids in your classroom. Do that. That not, nothing's good. None of them are saying that. They're saying, do it very carefully. Have a plan. Lily, of course, it would be uh, very helpful for uh, President Trump and his reelection campaign if the economy bounced back and people were able to go back to work because they weren't taking care of kids at home. Oh, absolutely. So let's do it. Let's do it right. That ab- that absolutely no one, not me, is disagreeing that we have to find a way to open schools. The word, though, is safely. Here, here's what I do know. Republican parents 
Democratic parents, socialist parents, Tea Party parents, parents who love their kids, certainly want their kids back in school getting a good education. They will not sacrifice their kids' health or lives to get back on the job. And they don't have to. We can do it safely. And it won't be perfect, but it'll be better than we have now. And what we have to do is to listen to those medical professionals who talk about creative ways of distancing, disinfecting the masks and the gloves. By the way, the testing and the tracing for the virus, there is no school budget to test for coronavirus. Um, and there needs to be those kinds of checks and wellness checks throughout the, the school day uh, to see if someone's infecting students or staff. We will we'll have to have very, very strict protocols. We are already, we meaning the educators of America, are already working with school boards. We're working with administrators, teachers, school nurses. We're saying, when we get to this point that we can do this safely, we've got to have our plan in place. There is a solution the uh, the funding that we've already passed the House on almost $200 billion that would go to school districts to help with all of those things that they're going to need to open schools safely. We could do this. And so please don't take your eyes off the prize. We want schools to open. We want them to open safely. Call your senators who are sitting on the funding that could help that happen. Lilia Skelson Garcia is a sixth grade teacher who serves as president of the National Education Association. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Be well. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of the things about America that may be about to change forever is the name of sports teams. Actually, this is already happening around the country. In fact, at the college and high school level, it's been happening since the 70s. And as the Washington NFL team now considers changing its name, it may look at Miami University of Ohio, which changed its team name from the Redskins to the Red Hawks 23 years ago. But the pressure is on the D.C. team as Amazon has joined Walmart and Target in refusing to sell merchandise that uses the word Redskins. CBS News correspondent Chip Reed is looking at this in Washington. Since the 1930s, the Washington Redskins have ruled over football in the nation's capital. But now the famous moniker looks to be on the outs. The team announcing it will undergo a thorough review of the team's name. Redskins owner Dan Snyder has been slow to embrace a name change. In fact, in an interview seven years ago, he famously said, we'll never change the name, it's that simple. Never. You can use caps. He also said this in an interview with ESPN in 2014. I understand where the name came from. I understand that, that it means, and, and obviously, whether we sing Hail to the Redskins, Braves on the Warpath, uh, it means honor, means uh, respect, means pride. But pressure from sponsors, including Nike, Pepsi, and FedEx, may force Snyder's hand. This is a great uh, day in terms of progress. Chuck Huskin Jr. is the principal chief of Cherokee Nation. It still hurts when uh, depictions of Native Americans or slurs, uh, frankly, are used to 
uh, in a commercial sense uh, or were reduced to mascots or caricatures. The National Congress of American Indians also weighed in, writing, This moment has been 87 years in the making. Indian country deserves nothing less. The time to change is now. The tide is shifting so 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 vigorously. Bill Roden is a columnist with ESPN's The Undefeated. He says team names like the Washington Redskins have no place in sports. They get the history of this name. That there's nothing nice about it. It was never intended to be nice. It was a bloody nickname. It still is a bloody nickname. And I think most people say we got it. We got to move on. For CBS This Morning, Chip Reed. Washington. The Cleveland Indians, who offed mascot chief Wahoo a few years ago, are now considering getting rid of their long-term name, though it's unlikely they'll go back to their previous name, the Spiders. Some teams are luckier, and that names that started as racial or ethnic epithets outlived that original meaning. One was started by the British when they took New Amsterdam from the Dutch. After the Dutch fled into New England, the term just began to mean anyone who moved north. A magazine in New England still proudly claims that title, and over time, its original anti-Dutch meaning was forgotten. And soon, it became even a term of pride for Americans, and by World War I, identified all of us to people overseas. The term had made fun of the Dutch and their most prevalent male name, Jan, and the fact they ate a lot of cheese, or, as is said in Dutch, keys. Jan keys. But that term faded quickly as a slur put down and never led to mascots found insulting to anyone. The terms most teams are dealing with today don't pass that test, and their fate is yet to be determined. This was America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad free on Wondery Plus.